Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Carl Weinberg, author of Red Dynamite, Creationism, Culture Wars, and Anti-Communism in America. Carl is Adjunct Associate Professor of History and Senior Lecturer in the College of Arts and Sciences at Indiana University, Bloomington. He is also the author of Labor, Loyalty, and Rebellion from Southern Illinois University Press. We spoke to Carl about the very real and hidden labor and socialist history of John Scopes of the famous Scopes Monkey Trial. Why there's a rational kernel of truth behind Christian conservatives linking the theory of evolution with communism and why Christian conservatives' main argument against evolution has always been more about its potential impacts on society rather than the actual science of biology itself. Hello, Carl. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Well, we're very excited about your new book, Red Dynamite, Creationism, Culture Wars, and Anti-Communism in America. It's available now in an affordable paperback and also available as a free download uh, from our website, uh, as well as other vendors. You can just click on the free download button and you can download a PDF or EPUB and read it right now. So we're really excited about that. So that in mind, we were curious to know uh, how you got interested in this topic and the backstory to this book. Sure. That's a great question because I did not study evolutionary biology in college or graduate school, nor did I focus very much on religion or intellectual history, but through various means, I ended up in this field. So a couple of things come to mind. First of all, when I was right out of college, I one day happened into the militant bookstore in Washington, D.C., where they were selling Pathfinder books published by the Socialist Workers Party, but also uh, various books uh, on evolutionary science. And one was by Stephen Jay Gould, uh, the very well-known paleontologist and defender of evolutionary biology in the culture wars. Uh, And I bought his book ever since Darwin and still have it. And one thing uh, that whole experience taught me is that there are communists and socialists out there promoting evolutionary science. Now, uh, I have to say another thread that led me to the book was my dissertation research on Illinois labor history, in which I came across some colorful characters, anti-socialist activists in Illinois who would chase around socialists from town to town when they were campaigning. One of them was a guy named David Goldstein, who became a a convert to Catholicism, a rather conservative one. Uh, He was a former socialist and became an anti-socialist activist. And in his autobiography, he explained that he turned away from socialism when he read Frederick Engels' Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State, in which Engels openly embraced an evolutionary explanation for human history and that we had ape ancestors, which Goldstein found horrifying. And then the, the most immediate spark to the book was I was teaching at North Georgia College in Dahlonega, Georgia. And uh, in 2002, Cobb County, not too far from where I was teaching in the suburbs of Atlanta, issued a new policy. The school board issued a new policy that required a disclaimer sticker on all biology textbooks that explained 
that evolution is a theory, not a fact, and therefore it should be carefully considered and approached with an open mind. This was, of course, inspired by creationist activists, by anti-evolution activists, and the school board adopted this, and it ended up in a lawsuit. So when this controversy broke out, I decided it would be really interesting to teach a course that traced the history of this controversy. And thankfully, the chair of the history department where I was teaching gave me permission to create this course. Uh, and I called it the history of evolutionary science. And in the course, I was able to have as guest speakers, both Jeffrey Selman, the plaintiff in the lawsuit against Cobb County, and a parent who was supporting the school board. They, they didn't want to be in the classroom at the same time. They both insisted on that. But my students got to hear both sides. And that was really the germ of the project that became this book. Wow, wow, that's fascinating. Tell us, what is Red Dynamite? What, the title of the book, tell us what, what the term Red Dynamite, where that comes from. Well, Red Dynamite, I have to say, I borrowed from a chapter title in a book by creationist geologist, George McCready Price. I would consider him the godfather of young earth creationism, of the kind of creationism we see today at, say, the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky, run by Answers in Genesis, which claims that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. In the early 20th century, people who believed that were outliers, actually, and George McCready Price, who was a geologist and at least an amateur geologist and a Seventh-day uh, Seventh Adventist, published a series of books where he connected evolutionary science with a variety of social and political and moral evils. And one of these books was called The Predicament of Evolution, published in 1925, the year of the Scopes trial. And in that book, he told the story of a socialist activist and minister, which he was appalled at, a guy named Book White, who, believe it or not, started a church in New York City called the Church of the Social Revolution, White was arrested a number of times for his political activities, and he was also a devout evolutionist. And Price quoted an interview with White where White said uh, that a kind of liberal Christianity that included an openness to evolutionary science was social dynamite, those were Book White's words, that will blow up the whole apparatus of capitalist civilization. He thought that was a positive thing. Needless to say, George McCready Price did not. And so when he wrote this book, The Predicament of Evolution, he borrowed from that quote from White and he called the chapter Red Dynamite. And the key statement in his chapter that, that captures this idea of red dynamite and why evolution is so horrible uh, for George McCready Price, and then a whole series of figures who followed him in the 20th century goes like this. Marxian socialism and the radical criticism of the Bible are now proceeding hand in hand with the doctrine of organic evolution to break down all those ideas of morality, all those concepts of the sacredness of marriage and of private property on which Western civilization has been built during the past thousand years. So evolution and socialism are marching together to create this hell on earth. And, and Price is warning about this in his book, and that suggested to me the title of the book. That's great. That's great. So in the eyes of creationists, evolutionary thought promotes immoral, social, sexual, and political behavior, and Christian conservatives 
have been well, for, for decades been demonizing uh, Darwinian thought, um, believers of uh, evolution, and calling them either satanic or communist. And you know, in, in the mainstream culture, that's people think that that well, that's that's crazy. But you said there's actually a rational kernel of truth behind these accusations. Tell us more about that. Sure. Yes, that is one of the major aims of my book is to point out that Christian conservatives may be propounding conspiracy theories that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but there is a grain of truth in what they're saying about the connection between communism and evolutionism. First, the conspiracy theories. There are a range of them that I cover in the book. One of them that was supported for many years by Henry Morris, one of the founders of so-called creation science in the modern era, and the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, which still is around today. Morris wrote in a number of books about how the real origin of evolutionary thought does not go back to Darwin, but goes back much further. And you can find the origin in the story of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. And according to Morris, Nimrod and his minions built uh, this tower with the idea that man could become like God. And this then made him into a figure who was allied with the other side, that is uh, Satan. And so the idea is then that uh, through this process, Satan somehow planted seeds of evolutionary thinking. Of course, peoples were then scattered all over the world. Uh, God uh, punished uh, humanity for, for aspiring to become like gods, but also scattered were these uh, various evolutionary ideas, which initially appeared in mythical origin stories, um, that you uh, that that you hear from different cultures around the world, but according to Henry Morris, these were infected with evolutionary ideas, and th he then traced the influence of the satanic elements in evolutionary thinking all the way to the 20th century, through through Charles Darwin, who was implicated in various conspiracies, and even through Alfred Russell Wallace, lesser known, but the a scientific investigator who came up with the idea of natural selection almost exactly at the same time as Darwin did, and uh, Darwin freely uh, gave him credit for this. In his book, The Long War Against God, Henry Morris actually makes the argument that Satan was present in the East Indies when Alfred Russell Wallace hit on the idea of natural selection. And taking the satanic theme further, in a museum that the Institute of Creation Research created in uh, San Diego, California. It's, it's today in Santee, California, in the suburbs of San Diego. Uh, there is an exhibit that claims that Karl Marx was a Satanist as well. That's based on a, a book called Marx and Satan, uh, which I talk about in my book by uh, an interesting character named Richard Rumbrand. Uh, in any event, uh, the creationists have seriously made this, uh, this claim uh, that that Satan is implicated in evolution and that Marx and Marxists are somehow Satanists. Now, I don't believe Marx was a Satanist. Uh, I don't believe Satan created evolutionary ideas. However, there is one aspect of this which is true. And, and the true part is that Marx, Engels, Lenin, 
Trotsky, their followers in the United States and in many places around the world were supporters of evolutionary science. Uh, that part is true, and it has not gotten much attention from scholars. So as an example, uh, in the fam origin of family private property in the state by Engels, he affirms evolutionary ideas. Uh, Lenin uh, gave many speeches uh, supporting uh, evolutionary thought. Uh, Leon Trotsky, one of the other central leaders of the Bolshevik revolution, gave an interview with Max Eastman, where he explained that when he was in prison, when Trotsky was in prison in Siberia for revolutionary activities, he read Darwin and Darwin, quote, destroyed the last of my ideological prejudices against Marxism. And uh, Darwin, Trotsky told Eastman that Darwin stood for me like a mighty doorkeeper at the entrance to the temple of the universe. I always loved that, that statement from uh, Trotsky, it captures a lot and creationists have quoted it too <laughs> for for opposite reasons and i can add a few other things to this uh, in the american socialist movement in the early 20th century lesser known figures like arthur morrow lewis who i write about in my book who was working class himself lewis spoke to workers in large overflow meetings in chicago about darwin's ideas and about um, evolutionary science he was selling evolution to the masses. So there was this real campaign by socialists and communists to spread evolutionary ideas. And so Christian conservatives are not making that up. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's you hear that famous quote from Marx, who I'm sure he probably pulled it from someone else, but that uh, religion is the opium of the masses. So this is uh, seems to be part of the, the culture wars of science versus religion. And the the communists were taking the side the side of science, um, you, know, you know the new scientific man uh, ideas like this. I can see how this would uh, be a call to war uh, for Christian conservatives. And your book details a lot of these battles. Um, I thought it was interesting in the very beginning. You you focus on the Scopes monkey trial and how they went after Thomas Scopes the father and then John Scopes who was in the trial as rabid socialists. And there was, that's, I don't know if they were rabid, but they certainly were uh, on the socialist spectrum. So it fit really very well into that narrative. Tell us, tell us more of what you uncovered with the Scopes Monkey trial. Yeah, indeed. I had not originally planned to start the book with the Scopes trial, but um, I, I was asked to do something on that by the series editors at Cornell. And I'm so glad they asked me because I ended up discovering a whole dimension of the background to the Scopes trial that most people have never heard about. Well, it's certainly been noted by scholars that Thomas Scopes, John Scopes' father, was a socialist and a labor organizer. But the full story hasn't been told. And I looked a bit into that. I mean, he was really a central activist in the, so, in the Socialist Party in, in the Midwest. And uh, he, he knew all the major uh, figures in the party, people like Eugene Debs. He introduced Eugene Debs uh, on the stage when uh, Debs came uh, through towns he was living in. He organized, he was the organizer of the branch of the party uh, in a number of places. Um, and he arrived with several books under his arm, one of which was Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And so uh, socialism and evolutionism ran in the family. Uh, John Scopes is often portrayed as a kind of hapless, naive victim of circumstances in Dayton, Tennessee. 
Uh, but it turns out that his upbringing was highly relevant. The fact that his father was an evolutionist, a socialist, a labor organizer, all those things were relevant. The other piece concerns Dayton, Tennessee itself, which normally is simply a placeholder for a southern town that wants to get some attention to boost business. And that's all we really learn about it. But it turned out that Dayton, Tennessee itself was an industrial boom town based on coal mining for the steel industry. Their coal mines uh, were powered by investments from English industrialists who uh, poured uh, millions of dollars into developing this part of the country, part of the New South that uh, people learn about when they study American history. Um, and what that meant as well was that Dayton, Tennessee featured class conflicts that we've seen all over the country whenever there are mining towns and coal miners risking their lives to dig coal and dynamite coal out of the earth, uh, that uh, you're going to get conflict. And in fact, that happened there as well. Um, there were a whole series of strikes uh, in the 1890s and early 20th century. Uh, United Mine Workers of America Union Local was formed in Dayton, and the Dayton miners were very much in support of a, a widespread revolt by East Tennessee miners against the convict lease system that existed in Tennessee. The state of Tennessee had, after the Civil War, when slavery was no longer illegal, uh, the mine owners had gotten the state to agree to a system where those who were imprisoned could be leased out uh, to uh, the mine owners uh, for a fee and the miners would be paid nothing. They were predominantly African-American, although not entirely so. And this became a, a kind of continuation of, of slavery, immensely profitable for the mine owners. It also served to divide workers so that primarily white coal miners and black miners uh, were set against each other. And so the union movement took this up as an issue and launched a campaign, which eventually became, in some places, an armed rebellion against convict lease. Well, miners in Dayton were very aware of this and they actually signed a petition in support uh, of this campaign. And so what you start to see is that Dayton and the Scopes family are part of this whole world uh, of industrial capitalism, of labor revolt, uh, and of really big moral questions posed about what kind of society do we want to live in? And to me, this is the proper background for the trial, rather than this isolated sleepy town in which all people are mindlessly uh, supportive of fundamentalism and really don't know anything else that's going on in the world. It's, it's an entirely different picture. And, and especially if you have based your knowledge of the, of, the, of the trial, as so many people have by the movie Inherit the Wind, which really accentuates all these features. So once you start to understand the true context of the trial, then the rest of my book, which address continually addresses these issues of the relationship between the fight over evolution with basic questions of power relations in society and labor and revolt and all the rest, that, that connection makes much more sense. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so what you're saying is that the central question is, what kind of society do we want to live in? And that's where the attacks are coming from and the arguments. Um, and a central premise of the creationist standpoint is that ideas have consequences for the future of our society. Tell us the evolution of this idea, not, not, not to use the word evolution in, in the wrong context, but tell us the evolution of this idea 
and how prevalent this view is today in the year 2021? Yeah, I would say, and I say this in the book, that the main concern of creationists has always been social evolution, not biological evolution. That is, the idea that morality can evolve, that our moral standards can change over time. That's most disturbing uh, to creationists and to Christian conservatives. The idea is that evolution undermines a belief in God and thereby undermines the idea of eternal, stable moral codes. Because if you don't have the Bible and God as the anchor for those codes, you have nothing. As a result, Christian conservatives say anything goes. And when they say anything goes, it, there, there are two sides to that, which I could summarize by sex and death or sex and violence, the kinds of evils they say flow from an evolutionary way of thinking. Another way of summarizing this idea is if you teach people that they descended from animals, they'll act like animals. Interesting. And to your question about to what extent this idea is still prevalent today, I would point to a piece, Answers in Genesis, published in 2011, where they say, that today we're seeing the consequences of evolutionary teaching. When you teach generation after generation of children, they're nothing more than evolved animals. Why should it surprise us that they begin to act like animals? And then they give examples of the kinds of behavior they see as evolution inspired, or in my book, I talk about animalistic behavior or bestial behavior, which are, are terms that continue, continually come up. And the cover, the lovely cover of the book that Cornell did uh, with a scary looking gorilla very powerfully conveys the, the horror of this bestial behavior that Christian conservatives have been warning about. So Answers in Genesis points to things like school violence, lawlessness, homosexual behavior, pornography, abortion, and as they say, quote, many other destructive behaviors. So they found a way to make this ideas have consequences concept very relevant to ordinary people's lives. And that's one of the points that I make in the book is that this way of arguing, you could describe it as moral consequentialism. That is, you judge things by their effects, by their practical effects. It's weirdly is a kind of pragmatist idea. And that's odd because one of the people they demonize, uh, they've one of the people they've demonized over the years, John Dewey, the great pragmatist, who also had some sympathy for socialism. So they they tend to include them in that same net with communists and socialists. In any event, uh, the idea then is that you judge ideas by their practical effects. And so one example from history that I include in the book, and there's a nice political cartoon in chapter three about this, uh, it shows a monkey in a tree and the monkey says, I refuse to claim a blood relationship with such people, such people being humans, Evolution is the bunk. The things the monkey attributes to evolution are a reflection of the ideas of Gerald Winrod, one of the best known creationists of the 1920s. And the things that, the things that Winrod attributes to evolution include murder, divorce, crime, war, gangsterism, Bolshevism, whoopee parties. Not exactly sure what they are, but I think we get the idea. And greed and bootlegging. So there's a, again, there's a real populist cast to this idea of ideas have consequences. And any number of times 
uh, in the creationist literature, and I point this out in the book, we get a rhetorical move where creationists will spend a lot of pages talking about the alleged inadequacies of evolutionary science, or they'll talk about how evolutionary science contradicts the book of Genesis. But if they're, but they also are aware that their own followers and readers may not want to spend a lot of time reading about the intricacies of biology. And they also may not be biblical experts. But your ordinary person does know about murder, divorce, crime, war, gangsterism, etc. So that way of thinking that ideas have consequences strategy, which is really the frame for the whole book, gives them the ability to talk to ordinary people in a compelling way. Well, you've done a great service by bringing this information to the academy, to scholarship, um, in, in the spirit of further understanding. When, once you read uh, the, the rationale behind these critiques of evolution and uh, thought, evolutionary thought, it, it makes sense, you know, like we, with the, the culture wars make sense that that both sides, um, you know, as a species, not to go down uh, the road of evolution, but as a species, we 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 are tribal in nature, and and it's it's easy for us to to find an other to put problems of of humanity onto, and both sides or multiple sides point the finger at some bigger cause that that needs to be uh, reckoned with or part of some larger war of good versus evil and you you are able to flush out the argument uh from the creationist side in a way that's understandable to people and and reduces the amount of tension between this this ongoing battle of ideas and the more we can you know put walk in someone else's shoes the the easier we can live together rather than say this you know it's either my way or the highway or this, uh, it's us versus them. Your, your book brings understanding to this topic in a way I haven't seen before. And so I wanna thank you for writing this book and, and bringing this information to light. Well, you're very welcome. And I, I, I certainly hope that it helps people think through what we're really facing here. And I, and I would add to what you said that I, I personally think that deep conflicts will continue. But if we start to understand that where the creationists are coming from here is really a concern about the world they're living in. Yeah. Even though they may, they may talk primarily in terms of the scripture or may claim that evolutionary science um, is bad science. But anybody who studies science seriously knows that's not credible. It's not to say that evolutionary science is perfect, but but, mm -hmm. but their critiques are not scientifically serious. But what, but what, we what we all have in common is that we care about the world we live in. Yes, and yes. the issues that they're concerned about are tough issues, the cultural issues of gay rights, gay marriage, transgenderism, abortion rights. But there are also things that, that deal with this world we're living in, which gives us potential basis for, for progress. They, that understanding that makes me more optimistic about eventually resolving this conflict in a positive way. Well, that's, that's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I'm hopeful, that uh, we can uh, diagnose the, the problem and, and come up with some potential solutions. So that's, that's what we want. 
So again, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast and discussing your new book, Red Dynamite, Creationism, Culture Wars, and Anti-Communism in America. It's been a fascinating talk, and I encourage anyone listening to, there's a, as I said earlier, there's an affordable paperback, but there's also a free version of this book that you can just go to our website, download it, start reading it right now. Um, so we encourage you to do that. Uh, Carl, it was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That was Carl Weinberg, author of Red Dynamite, Creationism, Culture Wars, and Anti-Communism in America. Follow Carl on Twitter at Euclid585. If you'd like to read Carl's new book, you can download a free open access ebook on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. You can also use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on the new paperback. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>